This podcast is a production of Schweitzer, a United Methodist Church, transforming lives by making disciples of Jesus Christ. Well, we are talking about the battles that we're fight, fighting in life, and today we are talking about fear. You know, in one sense, it's a good thing that God has wired us in such a way that we become fearful when we are in true danger, when a pit bull is raging at us, when something is coming at us, when uh, we need to be aroused and know when to fight and when to flight. But we also know that uh, fear can get the best of us. We know that our imaginations can run kind of rampant, and there's childhood experiences that we've had that cause us to be fearful beyond uh, measure. I would suggest that maybe there's that little child in you. There's that uh, fearful little one that we don't want to address. I'd like to ask you the question this morning, uh, what are you afraid of? How is fear uh, playing out in your life? You know, fear has a way of masquerading itself. Anger can oftentimes ride on the tidal wave of fear. Fear is a secondary emotion. It's oftentimes hiding behind something else. And so what is it that uh, you're afraid of today? Kelly Eckert has named uh, seven very common fears. Maybe in that list you can find one or two that relates to you, the fear of inadequacy, the fear that we're not ever going to really measure up, the fear of not being in control, uh, the fear of uh, feeling a sense of worthlessness, of not feeling like uh, we're valued, the fear of change. I think that's something we fear more and more as we get older, the fear of lack or want, the fear of not having what we need, the fear of vulnerability of being real and our need to put up a facade and uh, the fear of missing out of life kind of passing us by. All kinds of things can drive us when fear is in the driver's seat. What is it that makes you afraid? You know, there's a hundred different directions we could go to this morning in this message about fear. But what I want to do with you is to look at the old biblical story of Adam and Eve and and to see how that uh, when they make bad choices, how that unfortunately fear leads them away from each other and causes them to run and hide from God. And yet how God takes the initiative in helping them and in helping us to address our fear and restores this relationship and how that faith can counteract fear. So let's look at uh, two different dialogues from Genesis chapter 3. The first one is the conversation that is occurring between the serpent and Eve. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman. 
For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Now, who does the serpent represent in the story? Who is the serpent? You know, we obviously, classically, the, the answer to that is Satan or the evil one. And certainly, I don't, I don't fight against that classical interpretation that the serpent is, is the evil one, is Satan. But I would also want to add this caveat that the, that the serpent can represent anything or anyone in your life that is pulling you away from, from your trust in God, that, that is pulling you away from, from the goodness of who you're called to be, the true person you're called to be. And so the serpent can be anything that's distorting the truth and creating in you an imagination in which, well, maybe I, I should do this. Maybe I should take the forbidden fruit even though it's off limits. And so what happens is, in this conversation, the serpent begins to distort the truth. God said, you're not supposed to eat any, any tree in the garden? No, Eve says. Eve makes the mistake of entering into conversation, entering into conversation with trying to set the record straight. But then the serpent has her and is able to say to her when she says, well, God says, just don't eat this one tree or you'll die. You will not die. You will not die. You'll be like God. You'll know the difference between good and evil. Your eyes are going to be opened. And so what happens in the story is that Eve takes a look at what was forbidden or what was outside the boundaries. And she sees it's desirable, and she's enticed, and she eats, and her husband with her, he eats as well. You know, we live in a time and in a culture where um, some people suggest that anything beyond boundaries is, is okay, that there really aren't boundaries in relationships. That there are things that uh, when we're told we can't have something or we can't do something, where's freedom in that? that? That's oppressive to us. And many folks are suggesting in our culture today that when anything is forbidden from us, that that's, that's oppressive. That's oppressive religion. That's oppressive faith. Who is God to withhold anything from you? Can you really trust God? Or can you really trust anyone's interpretation of God? Aren't you in charge of your life? Shouldn't you decide what you want? Who's to say to you what you can't do? And what happens is that tragically, the woman, and then the man, 
both decide to go beyond the boundaries of trust and do what had been forbidden. What does a tree represent for you? Oh, it's a story. It's a tree of goodness and good and evil. It's, but, but what does the tree represent in your life? Is there something that's forbidden in your life? Is there something that you know you shouldn't? You know you really shouldn't. You know it's going to do some hurt. It's going to do some devastation. It's going to do some harm. But by golly, you want to do it anyway. What does the tree represent for you? Well, let's read on and see what happens in the story. Then the man and his wife, then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God's called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. And then, then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. Do you see yourself uh, in this story? Do we see the consequences and the results of what happens when fear begins to get in the driver's seat and we begin to do things that are beyond where we thought we would go and how that shame begins to enter into this relationship and the sense of security and the enjoyment that we once had with God or we once had with our spouse, or we once had with our dear friends, has been compromised, is no longer there. In the dialogue between Adam, God, and Eve, we find these consequences in terms of what occurs, that their innocence, their sense of, of innocence is taken away. They become aware of their nakedness. They become very self-conscious. It's a beautiful thing to be able to see a two-year-old child, to, to see a child with a sense of play and uh, no sense of having to filter, um, a, a sense of doing what they want to do, and yet what happens to us as we get older, as we go into adolescence, as we go into adulthood, we, we're afraid of our nakedness. We're more self-conscious. We're more restrictive. We're no longer vulnerable with each other. And we construct fig leaves. And the fig leaves can represent the false self, the, the facade that we put up, the front that we put up, where the person that we truly are is hiding behind fig leaves. And the worst kind of fig leaves are religious fig leaves, where we pretend to be something that we're not. And ultimately, in their fear and their sense of shame, Adam and Eve no longer feel comfortable with each other they can no longer be vulnerable to each other. They can no longer be fully intimate with each other. And worst of all, 
they run and hide from God. Now, it's amazing to me what God does in this story. You would think that God would just kind of throw up his hands and say, the heck with them all. I'm done with this already. But God doesn't do that. But God comes to them and he looks for them. God is not only approachable, God is the one that approaches them. And God comes looking and calling them, where are you? And then there's into this conversation. God asks the questions. God asks the right questions. God helps them to address their fear. God loves them. God helps them to face the consequences of their, of their actions. God, even as they leave the garden, if you would continue to read the story, you'd find that God puts clothing over their skin because God knows that they are vulnerable and they are self-conscious. And God, out of a sense of grace, knows that they need to be able to protect themselves from the harshness of this world. And that's kind of the state of the human condition, isn't it? And yet, because of God's grace, because of God's overtures coming to us, reaching out to us, finding us, we can begin to be secure. We can find our way back to intimacy. And it's Jesus Christ who has come to the garden of the earth, calling us by name, saying, where are you? Where are you? You know, one of the most interesting uh, statements about God that might trouble us when we first hear it, it's in, more in the Old Testament, but it's this understanding that where God says, I'm a jealous God. And, you know, that, that's a good thing. Now, God is not jealous for us out of a sense of, of uh, belittlement or self-interest. But God is jealous for us like a parent is jealous for a child when they mess up. God is jealous for those things in our life that we could have and we could know. And yet, we, we can have apart from him. God is jealous like a lover comes after us. Uh, when someone's been unfaithful to us, our spouse... God comes after us. God's heart is broken, but God doesn't leave us. God is the one that's faithful. God is the one that's good. God that does not ever leave us alone. God is jealous about what is best for us because God values us so much. And the incredible thing about God is that there is nothing we can do to keep God from loving us and wanting us and desiring us. So there is no shame. There's nothing we've done. There's nothing we've failed to do that disillusions God. J.I. Packer in his book, Knowing God, has this profound statement about God. He says, I, I am graven in the palms of his hands. I'm never out of his mind. All my knowledge of him depends on his sustained initiative in knowing me. I know him because he first knew me. And knowing that I am known by God, there is nothing about me that God doesn't already know so that no new discovery about myself 
can disillusion him, disillusion God about me. You know, that is, that is a marvelous grace. That, that's, that's an incredible sense of love. That no matter how much we've messed up, no matter how much we hide and are fearful of God, God wants to be in relationship with us. And God is the one that makes that approach. And yet, we're fearful. And we want to have an encounter with God about as much as the girl wanted to have an encounter with her dentist. But it's when we're hiding, almost in a fetal position. God comes for us, reaching out to us. The tragic thing is that our fear of God, of, of, of a sense of reverence, a sense of awe has been replaced by a sense of trepidation and shame. And yet, that's the story of the gospel, that Jesus comes and he offers himself to us. And that God doesn't love us because we are good or because we deserve his goodness. God loves us because he is good. And that all of us are made in the image of God. That all of us are highly valued by God. And God, as a jealous lover, cannot ever get over us. And that when I mess up, when I lose the grip of myself, God seeks to have an even stronger grip on me. And friends, it's when we do receive this love, it's when we're, we accept God's acceptance of us that, that we begin to then have the ability to, to be intimate and, and to share trust and vulnerability with each other. Last uh, Sunday evening was Susan's birthday, and so um, I gave her a birthday card. I'm a really lousy gift giver. I don't have a clue on the type of gift to buy my wife or my children or hardly anyone, but I am really good at picking out cards, okay? And I thought I picked out another doozy, another winner this, this past week. And I gave her the card, and on the outside of the card, it said something like, I am one of the most fortunate men in the world. I'm so thankful. And you open up the card, and it says, you know, because of you, beautiful you. And Susan looks at that card, and she starts laughing out loud, just laughing. I'm beginning to feel kind of hurt, you know. It's mushy. I'm vulnerable. I'm putting my feelings out there. I'm telling her how much I love her. And she's laughing. I said, why are you laughing? And she says, isn't it amazing that you and I, who know each other so well, all our flaws, and we love each other just the same. And I think Susan said something very, very profound. We don't have to hide our flaws behind or away from each other, as if we ever could after, what, 30, 35 years of marriage. But what Carl Jung says is true, that the greatest and most important problems of life are fundamentally unsolvable. They can never be solved, but only outgrown. It's not that Susan and I have reached perfection. It's not that Susan and I don't have our problems or our moments. 
It's just that the things that used to bug us so much don't really matter anymore. And there's a sense of acceptance and love and security that we have. It's when God goes to work in our lives and we become more secure ourselves and we know that we are loved by God, flaws and all, we can then extend love and grace to each other. We can be real with each other. And we can learn in marriage to be fully intimate in every sense of the word. And we can learn in friendships to be real, that we don't have to put on some major facade. Recently, I heard a pastor confide, you know, I don't really ever want to struggle, uh, share my struggles or my problems uh, in the pulpit about myself because I don't want people to feel less of me and I don't want them to think less of God's ability to change my life. And I didn't know whether to laugh or cry at that comment. Now, I, I get the idea that you don't want your pastor to be an axe murderer. You know, that's, that's, that's a given. But it's when we're able as leaders to be vulnerable and to talk about real problems and struggles that we have that we give the gift of vulnerability to the community. It's when we are real about our own struggles and our own flaws that encourages other people to face and identify their own fears and to accept God's grace and help in their life. Nancy Carlson is a, a member of Schweitzer. Uh, she's a Christ follower. And uh, recently, she and I sat down, and I want to invite you to watch this video as Nancy really exemplifies the value of vulnerability. Let's watch. When I was, um, oh, in my 20s, I all of a sudden ended up having this alcohol problem. And how could that be? I certainly wasn't a drinker in my early 20s, so... At 26, I couldn't quit drinking for a day. Don't you find that kind of hard to believe? Or About you, yes. Yeah. 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 But it happens. It did. We lived in a small town in um, Nebraska, and my husband was a guidance counselor for the whole school system. So that isn't real cool to have a wife that can't quit drinking for a day. And we had two little babies, so... Um, it, where I was, since you're talking about fear today, is I felt so worthless. Not that God had left me, but that I didn't deserve to be in God's flock. I didn't deserve to be helped. And I knew a young mother with two babies ought not be drinking daily. I knew that. So there was something desperately the matter with me. And... Uh, I wouldn't have gone out and shared this a whole lot. I did tell my doctor, and God had it in the plan. Uh, this doctor at 42 years ago was aligned with an alcoholism treatment center. Who would have known? And he said the day he saw me, will you go into a treatment center today? So I, again, was bright enough to say to myself, 
I don't know what the problem is here, but there's a very definite problem. So I'll either go into the treatment center or end my life, one or the other. So let's try the treatment center first. And um, I went through a four-week treatment center, and I was there for six weeks. I got what I needed to get. I got what I needed to get. And lo and behold, Bob, did I realize that how blessed, and not just lucky, forget lucky, forget um, fortunate, I was blessed that three years later, I was so enthusiastic about this recovery that I was asked to go through a training program to be a counselor. And I mean, that's, that's all there was. Uh, the next 37 years, I've been a drug and alcohol counselor and loved every minute of it. What would you say just to encourage anyone, regardless of what their problem is, to uh, be vulnerable and to face it, uh, not to run from it with fear, but to let God and other people help them? Find somebody you trust, which is very difficult to do, because if you have a problem, many times you don't trust anybody. But find somebody you trust just a little bit to share it and maybe move on to get some help. Anything else you want to tell us? This, this uh, exposure makes me a tad bit fearful. I mean, who likes to come out and say, gee, I'm a recovering alcoholic. Um, but I, I uh, give the credit to God, and that I need to uh, sing out loudly. Well, Nancy, it takes courage to be vulnerable, and I appreciate your courageous words today for us. So how do we face our fear? Nancy says you find one other person that you can trust. You find one other person. You find God. Do you find one other human being that you can say things to, that you can reveal things to, that you can name that, whatever that power, that shame, or whatever that grip that has on us, we name it before God and one other person. And we begin to address whatever that is, and that begins to have less and less power and grip over our lives. We stop becoming stuck or paralyzed or immobilized, and we begin to experience acceptance and grace and help, and we gather the courage, we gather the courage to face it. And it's God's unconditional love, it's God's grace, it's God again, reaching out to us through other human beings, through His Word, through His Spirit, that makes all the difference, that helps us to run away from hiding and run into the arms of God. There's a, a scripture in Romans that speaks so much to this, that uh, while we were still weak or when we were still sinners, if we could have that up on the board, please, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. So it's, it's after we've messed up. It's nothing about what we do. 
For scarcely will someone die for a righteous person, though a person, perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us. God commends his love for us. And that while we're yet sinning, messing up, Christ died for us. See, Jesus is the one that comes to the garden of the earth and says, where are you? And it's when we learn to accept God's acceptance of us. It's when we stop justifying ourselves or putting our defenses up or trying to, de to defend our own actions or, or blame the woman or to blame the serpent. But we just come clean. We come clean. We experience God's acceptance and grace. We no longer have to justify ourselves, but we are justified by faith in Jesus Christ, in faith in what Jesus has done for us and has given himself for us and the offer of his love and forgiveness. And when we accept that, we accept Jesus into our life, his love is poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. God doesn't love us because we're good. God loves us because God is good. And His goodness begins to, to move fully and richly. We become the person we're created to be, the true self, and the false stuff, and the bogus stuff, and the surface stuff, and the ridiculous things that we worry about. They go away. And when God takes possession of us, there's no room for fear. I love the scripture in 1 John 4 that says there is no fear in love. But perfect love, that is love that's made complete, cast out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever is fearful is not yet made complete in love. So we've kind of gone full circle today. You know, we've looked at the human condition. We've looked at the reality that, you know, all of us are Adam and Eve. All of us have stepped outside the boundaries. All of us have gone our own way. All of us have distrusted God's. All of us have decided to do things that have hurt other people. And all of us know the temptation to cower in fear and shame. And yet Jesus comes, calling us by name, asking us, where are you? Inviting us into the family, inviting us to accept his love, his mercy, his forgiveness. There's no fear in love. Now, this is the love that casts out fear. Will you pray with me? Lord, I want to pray today for all of us and especially for the person who feels away from you, the person that may be hiding in the bushes, the person that is cowering down in their spirit or in their heart. And I pray, God, that they would hear you call them by name. Where are you? And they would rise up and they would come to you. I pray, God, that you would help them, help all of us, to accept the free gift of forgiveness and mercy 
and that we can accept your love, be changed by that love, and we no longer have to go the blame game. We're justifying our actions, but we can just come clean. I pray, God, that you would help each of us to know you in a personal way as our Lord, as our Savior. Help us to know you who knows us so well. Amen.